weeks ago, I exercised a demon out of my body overnight, and oh my gosh, like if you, like the last month, if you're like, you know, the way that Kent's preaching, I think there's something evil affecting him, I agree with you now, and I got it out, so good, just in time for Easter, and uh, then last week, we were welcoming our fourth and first baby, first girl, Greta, into the world, and so that was, uh, yeah, right, we can, that's new life, uh, yeah, yeah, and uh and man, it's true. I talked with a lot of like four kid, five kid parents, like interviewing, like just this whole last 10 months, I've just been like, like break it down real for me right now. Um, and they all just kind of said, man, two to three is the jump. And after that, you just toss them on top and you keep going. It's really true. It's really true. I cleaned out our whole basement uh, because of a mold issue on my paternity leave while taking care of them. It was just like, it didn't even phase us. It's just like, there's another kid here and they can they can fall in line they can hang on the wagon or they can fall off we don't need another kid we got plenty so either way um let's uh let's do corporately what john had you do in individual relationship during the passing of the peace i will say to you and then you'll corporately respond uh the historic universal church greeting of easter so if i say to you he is risen he is risen Okay, we're getting there. He is risen. He is risen indeed. There we go. So you got to catch up because I'm very happy. It's Easter. And I'm feeling good. We have drums in the house. Praise Jesus. We have drums in the house. Yeah, yeah I mean, there was a point where Dee said, music is going to be loud today. And I said, let it be loud. If one person complains about the volume, and if you're doing it right now in your head, I, you can come to me and talk all you want, and I'm just going to say it's Easter Sunday. If there's a Sunday where it's going to be a little loud and we go to 11, it should and will be Easter. And if you don't like the volume, then you're not going to like the new creation because with a whole room of angels, a whole eternity of angels chanting holy, holy, holy across the universe of time, space, history of our God is not going to sound like a library. But as we say those words that the church has affirmed on this day, year in, year out, for 2,000 years, I want to emphasize that you don't hear it and react to it like you live in the house of George Banks. And George Banks, of course, is the owner of the house in Mary Poppins, the father character, which is now a relevant reference again because of Mary Poppins Returns was basically the exact same movie, beat for beat. And now, in that original Mary Poppins, though, with the slightly better song, you get George Banks' house, which is set and built right next to an old military general or something who decides to blast a cannon off at the hour, every hour. And so, of course, every time the cannon goes off, the maids run around the room running and grabbing vases and artwork and glass porcelain statues and keeping everything from falling. But they do so with hardly a wrinkle of their brow because they're used to it. And my fear for me and for you, particularly whether you're a Christian and you've been in Easter every Sunday, you've been alive, or you're not a Christian, you got invited here by somebody who is. That just because of our culture, we hear that he is risen, he is risen indeed, and it's like a cannon blast that shakes the house, but we, we react like maids running around catching vases with no sense of urgency. Because that is a hope that is like nothing the world has ever seen until it emerged 2,000 years ago. And it should be something that, yes, 
maybe we come back to year in, year out to remind ourselves because it's easy to forget. Because let's face it, there's two competing views of reality right now that I'm sure that you probably oscillate between. One of them is that the world is just going to hell in a handbasket. And it's really easy. There's a lot of data to, pro to, to propagate this one. I mean, earlier this year, we had a government shutdown, which was the longest ever, based off of a crisis of refugees that we can't agree on, let alone solve, regardless of which side you fall on it. And then in New Zealand, Christchurch, a man walks in with a Facebook Live camera on his head into two mosques, killing 50, injuring 50 more. He got an even 100. And it was done because it was to show that, hey, no matter where you are, if you are not of the majority race, you are not safe. Paramedics said when they arrived on the scene, it was like a river of blood pouring out of the mosque. You have, of course, you say, well, that's abroad, but even locally, we had the, Pins uh, the Pittsburgh Temple shooting. We have Me Too continuing to go Throughout the world, you have the New York full-term full abortion law passed, which grants the ability to have an abortion all the way up to delivery. Yes, with doctor recommendation, but with language that's really easy to just make it a subjective call. You have the Myanmar uh, Rohingya genocide, where there's literally still genocide going on to this day. You have world leaders threatening nuclear war on Twitter. And one... I just find this one maybe, I, I say the funniest one, but I mean it in a real dark way. The wildfires of California this year, which was the most deadly, the most damaging, I mean, it was over 100 deaths, uh, 1.9 million acres damaged, $3.5 billion uh, of just property damage and, and land damage, to, uh, plus another $1.79 in fire suppression costs. And it was mainly centered around Paradise, California. Which, if anywhere, is going to have a paradise that we actually believe it is California. But it's literally that paradise California is on fire. And it puts forward this idea, and that's just this year. I mean, forget about Hurricane Harvey with this one point, or $125 billion in damages that rivals Hurricane Katrina. It's 107 confirmed deaths. The Las Vegas shootings, which was the deadliest of our country's history. I mean, regardless of any of that, of past, present, or future, there's this sense that it was asked uh, in a poll to just Americans, is the world getting better, worse, or staying the same? And 71% agreed it's getting worse. It's interesting because most of you, I'm assuming here, at least had some of your life spent in the 80s and 90s, one or the other at least. And in that time, it was unlimited potential and uptick. There was the administration of Reagan and Clinton and economic rise out the wazoo. All things were good. And in that time, a similar climate baked in this idea that maybe we don't need God. Maybe that's part of our past, not our future. That's part of the problem, not the solution. Because, hey, things are getting better all the time. But then over time, we realize, hey, some of these solutions that we thought were really going to take off are trying to go after problems that are a lot more complex than we thought. I mean, science, as much as it's done to help us understand the world, has maybe caused m as many questions as it has answered, as well as we just find in a 
free market system, whoever's funding the study tends to find the results that confirms a bias that they had previously. School systems were meant to save the wealth gap. Psychology was meant to make us all eventually get out of our neuroses and our anxiety and depression. DC was meant to be able to solve problems of systemic injustice and bring us together. Hollywood was supposed to make us all happy, and Silicon Valley was meant to make everything affordable and all things work at ease and us have a four-hour work week. Leslie Newbegin, who's a theologian, said in the 80s, with the beginning of all this rise, he said, secularism will eventually expose itself as the untrue story that it is. But this was the beginning of the 80s. Everything's on the uptick, and everyone's like, Leslie, you're crazy. Like, look around at what's going on. But now more and more social scientists are coming to a point where they agree with this idea that secularism is becoming more and more an untenable solution. It is a narrative of society, yes, but it is just that, just a narrative, a way to account of all the facts and realities that in some ways doesn't hold up, that we can't save ourselves, that we can't figure out over time. What's interesting, though, is simultaneously to this worldview of like the world is unraveling and everywhere that we put our hope in is eventually going to let us down. Simultaneously, we also can make an argument that the world has never been better. Johann Johan Norberg, in his book Progress, measures the world right now in 10 areas, and here they are. Food, sanitation, life expectancy, poverty, violence, environment, literacy, freedom, and equality. I got nine, so I missed one, but either way, nine things. And one more that you'll have to look up later. Every single metric we are at, we're at an all-time high. Just the last two decades alone, we've cut global poverty in half. Just the last 150 years ago, Americans and Western Europeans were living in far worse conditions than those today in sub-Saharan Africa, and they're doing it right now at the equivalent of less than a dollar a day. Johann Norberg says this, quote, despite what we hear on the news and from many authorities, the story of our era is that we are witnessing the greatest improvement in global living standards ever to take place. The risk that any individual will be exposed to war, die a natural disaster, or be subjected to a dictatorship has become smaller than any other epoch. A child born today is more likely to reach retirement age than his forebearers were to live to their fifth birthdays. The difference now is that wars, crime, disasters, and poverty are not only more visible, but also declining. What we see now are the exceptions rather than the rule. I mean, he makes the point that rates of poverty, malnutrition are falling, literacy rates are up, fewer children are for, uh, forced into labor, infant mortality is down. All this is happening at faster rates any time in history. Meanwhile, life expectancy in birth has increased more than is twice as much in the past century as it did the previous 200,000 years. The flywheel is spinning, my friend. Steven Pinker, who popularized all these findings by Norberg in his book Enlightenment Now, basically has a whole book that was bestseller, a bestseller a year ago that said this, Wake up, everyone. We are living in the golden age. But both Pinker and Norberg have to wrestle with the fact 
that even if these metrics are very true, and that we are, in fact, living in the golden age of society and the whole world, also social science says that very few of us feel like it. Happiness in America has been declining since 1960. Antidepressants, what psychologists are now calling an epidemic of anxiety, depression, bipolarism, schizophrenia, I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. The, uh, the best-selling prescription drug in the U.S. is an antipsychotic with sales over $7 billion in 2015. I, mean, I myself was diagnosed by a marriage counselor with OCD, which at that point I was just like, man, like, what do you know? You're a marriage counselor and that's not what I came here for. And this is just the overdiagnosis happy culture that we're in. And then I went home and read on OCD. And if I had been reading a book rather than reading off a laptop, I would have dropped the book because it made sense of a lot of things I had been experiencing for my entire life. So what's in all of this is that Johann Pinker would say, well, it's all driven, this idea that the world's better, but we don't feel it. It's driven by the media window that you peer through the world at. That whatever is your new source of choice, or whether you try to get the right, left, and middle all together in one place, that as we have to admit, media is a business and it's most attractive and clickbaity to report bad news. We get what we pay for. It's not the media's fault. It's just simply what we want. It's a window of what we desire. Or a mirror, I should say. But in that idea that, okay, it's just bad media, bad press, and if we just got our eyes on the real stats, we'd feel better about it all. But here's the reality. I am one of the most media-sheltered people that you would ever meet. I don't do social media. I haven't tweeted in like six years or looked at a tweet in that same length of time. I don't gram in an Insta kind of way or at more traditional speeds. I have Facebook, but my wall, if they still call it that, is more like the Berlin Wall, like it's like a relic of the past that other people mark on occasionally, but I don't know what's going on. And it's just there. It's just left up, you know, right? So my wife can tag me and stuff. People can follow my life vicariously through that. And I do get on every couple months. I get this cycle where I'm like, what is that person's name who goes to Soma? And I'm like sitting there and I get on there and then I see like, oh, I've got like 24 requests, not to like brag or anything. It's just how long I haven't been on. And, and like, I just like say yes to all of them so they can continue to watch the abandoned playground that is my Facebook. And... Even so, in all that, not, not only on that side of it, I don't have news media outlets that I look at on a regular basis. I mean, I have this general opinion that, like, yes, it's just like you're going to get confirmation bias on one side or the other, and I know, yes, then the way that you do it is you find one that you trust on the left and the right and the middle, and you read them all, but that just sounds like a lot of work to me, and I would rather not. And so I just kind of, like, bulk at the whole thing. And I know everybody who's, like, really, like, it's kind of cool to know what's going on in the world today kind of has that opinion, like, is incredulously uh, grimacing at me right now, and you do every time I voice this anyway. Here's the, here's the peak of my lack of media awareness. This Sunday after Charlottesville, Virginia, I walk in with no clue. 
My wife, at one point, I'm up Saturday night prepping my sermon, like typing away, and she's on Facebook scrolling through, and she says, hey, I think something big happened in Virginia. I'm in sermon mode. I don't have time. I say, really? Cool. And I keep going. I go to sleep. I wake up. I come in. At that point, Nate Dunlevy, the, uh, one of the pastors at Soma Northwest, when Soma Northwest, before it was a thing, and it was here, and people were here, Nate Dunlevy comes in. He says, hey, man, I don't know if you had something to talk to people about Charlottesville today or not, but let me do it. I feel like I have the words. I feel like I have the passion. I feel like I, I, I can really talk a unifying message today. And I looked at him. I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> I wanted it. I did. I, th- I felt like I had the healing words. I felt like I could really abridge the gap today. But you know what the Spirit's telling me to let you have it? <laughs> so you can. I am the most news sheltered. And if you're just like, well, yeah, but you still live in a world where people are all anxious because of the news they read. I mean, the fact is that we still have Anabaptists all over this country, which are completely sheltered from all media outlets intentionally, except for if they go to the zoo, which they do every single weekend. Why are they always at the zoo? And how is that not benefiting from the very technology that they askew? But regardless, in their communities, they have no media, and yet it hasn't solved all their problems. It hasn't made life a paradise. Because at the end of the day, if we have all nine or ten metrics off the charts, those are just needs and pleasures and comforts, which are a part of happiness. But as most psychologists and sociologists will draw, the pyramid of happiness and pleasure and desire Needs, comforts, and pleasures are only the tip of the iceberg. They're the uppermost, most superficial layer. Under that is meaning. Under that is community. And under that in the base is what they call transcendence or a sense that there is something above all of this that makes sense of it or what we in Christianity call life and life to the full in Jesus. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter all of the pleasures, all of the comforts, how many lattes you have, if it doesn't have meaning. Viktor Frankl famously stated that if you know the why, you can survive most any what. And he said that after exiting a concentration camp in Holocaust Germany. Because as he states and as he points out, Meaning is so much more important than meeting basic needs and pleasures. And if the grand meaning of our world is maximize pleasure and minimize pain, that doesn't quite scratch the itch. It doesn't get us anywhere close to transcendence. It gets us to right here, right now. Can it be a little bit better if I numb a little bit more or turn up a little bit louder? So my point in all of this, before we jump into our text briefly, and I will be brief. I have a Chick-fil-A bet with Tayshawn right now that if I can go under 35 minutes, he gets me Chick-fil-A at our next meeting. (laughs) I'm not planning on it. I'm not planning on going much further over that. So either way, the point is, is there are two competitive narratives right now. Is that world is going and unraveling and falling apart, or it's better than it's ever been, have a latte. They both have some sense of data. They both kind of feel true, but also both feel very insufficient. And so 
Open with me to Romans, chapter 8, verse 18. We'll allow the Apostle Paul to put language to this feeling now thousands of years ago. If you're in the Black Hardback Bibles, is page 944. Romans 8, 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation, for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. A little context to bring you up to speed in this passage. Paul, before he is a Christian, is a Jewish student of all things that are the Torah, the writings of the scriptures. I mean, he was a religious leader of religious leaders in the Jewish faith. And in the Jewish faith, he would have bought a particular view of humanity and what they would call the age and the age to come. And this was two ideas, two realms of reality separated by a seam. The age was filled with evil and darkness and pain. And the age to come would be what they call shalom, which we translate to peace, but that just so doesn't cut the Dijon. I mean, it's just so much more of all things flourishing and working together for the good of everyone and all of creation. It's perfect life as it should be. The scene that split the two was Judgment Day. And we think of Judgment Day as like a negative. I mean, those positive connotations you probably have is like Terminator 2. And like, other than that, you get like this sense of God standing with scales and condemning people to hell. But they saw Judgment Day as a positive. Because when you are an oppressed people group that has been through slavery and, and genocides and wanderings in the desert and hoping and longing for come, you desire for all evil to be done away with, including those who propagate it. And so they saw Judgment Day as a coming time that would separate the age, the age to come, and then all that had passed away, all that had fallen asleep, as Paul will say, would rise again. The resurrection, however, was a huge fly in the ointment to their thinking. You see, they had a specific thought that at the end of time, at least the end of the age, then judgment day would bring the resurrection of all of humanity at once. They had no concept for in the middle of this age, a singular person receiving the first fruits of resurrective grace. 
to show what would come of all who would follow after him and all of creation after him. That they did not have a concept for. And so Paul sits here and tries to press it forward that that this idea of a brand new hope, that we live in this time where, yes, creation is groaning and in pain and, and breaking down and in all futility, but yet we simultaneously have experienced the first fruits of resurrection, that resurrected life is not in the future, it is a reality now and can be experienced life and life to the full. Jesus is saying, hey, it's not just someday after you die that that will be in its total fullness, but I offer it to you for anyone who would come after me. I am the resurrection and the life, not I will be someday after you die. I am it now, that those who come to me will find themselves being remade into new creation, day after day, hour after hour, discipleship, after discipleship, growing slowly through pain, just yearning forward in the spirit. And then, yes, one day being fully remade. After life comes death, burial, and for those who stand in judgment day, not as an enemy, but a beloved son or daughter, then new life to the full that is never perishing in a world that was all that was meant to be, total shalom. And how this broke into the world was a catastrophe, as J.R.R. Tolkien would state. He coined this phrase, taking the prefix U, E-U, such as eulogy, and combining it with a normally negative word, catastrophe. A jarring, earth-shaking, paradigm-shifting event that created good rather than calamity. An example in Tolkien's writing was in The Lord of the Rings when after Gandalf the Grey had fallen off into a pit surely to his death, he suddenly, when hope is completely gone for all of the main characters, reappears resurrected as Gandalf the White. An inexplicable paradigm-shifting, earth-shattering, jarring event that brings about good rather than calamity. And of course, Tolkien, being a Christian when he was interviewed, said that the ultimate eucatastrophe this world has experienced is the resurrection of Jesus. And him coming in with a life proclaiming that I bring for you an inaugurated kingdom that is here now. That all who would come to me, blessed are you, if you're poor in spirit, if you're mourning, if you're meek, if you're hungering for justice and righteousness, if you're thirsting for these things, come to me if you're persecuted, because good news, my kingdom is for you, even you, even you. And as he inaugurated this idea, as he lived in such a way, which Mark Sayers, a pastor and cultural commentator from Australia, said that his life exuded the future that he was bringing, that he healed people of disease to show that disease eventually would be eradicated, that he pushed out demons from people's lives to say that evil would be of one day officially bound and thrown into the lake of fire, that he turned over tables in the temple to show that someday our worship 
would be untainted by financial gain or corruption or greed. And all of these things he pushes into our life. The problem is, is that we see them and we forget to live as if we are living in the active hope of that not only coming in one day, but pressing in every single day, including this one. And so, note that for Paul, this life is full of suffering. It is full of groaning. I mean, he uses the metaphor of child labor, which I do feel in many ways unqualified to talk about the pains of child labor. But as a man uniquely qualified since I've just seen it for the fourth time recently. And I will say that at one point I'm in the room when my wife chooses to get the epidural because we have done much to be able to mitigate pain. That the nurse says to me, hey, I don't know what you did for the other three, but they will ask you to leave because they've had too many husbands faint in the last little bit of watching a nine-inch needle enter into their wife's back that she willingly takes to relieve the pain of childbirth. And man, I say, after watching four times, not just that, but then the pregnancy that leads up to that. I know for you people who like don't have kids, you're like, this is weird and awkward. Not for me at this point. <laughs> not for me. Maybe my wife but not for me. <laughs> the pain of pregnancy, all that you watch go into it, it is intense. I, I, I do, I mean, I, I, I'm one who is very much so in support of, of us continuing to push forward the rights of women in our society and culture. I have gotten a little frustrated with some of the push on just like, hey, if we just make all women nose tackles, eventually the NFL will be 50-50. It's like the Bible's clear on one thing. There is a physical difference. But if you watch pregnancy and childbirth four times, you will never again question the quiet strength of womanhood. It is intense. And he says, it's like that, that all of creation is waiting and groaning. But just like childbirth, the pains are not without point. The suffering is not just because God wants to see what you can go through and still get out of alive, or maybe just one day you'll cast it all off and commit suicide. Because if you get punched in the stomach, you get woozy, maybe you vomit and you recover, but it has no greater point. But the pains of childbirth, every woman will say, though are excruciating, you endure them repeatedly because you know at the end it's bearing life. It's bearing a new reality. And Paul says, all of this world is like that. All of the pain and the suffering is very realistic about. He doesn't say, just have another latte. It's not really there. But he knows, he says, no, it's there. You feel it and I feel it. But not all pain leads only to death. That this kind of pain is not going into the ground to be buried forever, but being buried like a seed is buried. Yes, the pain is excruciating, but it is exactly that which brings new life. 
the ultimate picture of that is the eucatastrophe of the death of our God, who was not just buried to be forgotten, but was buried as a seed to spring up as the first fruits, which is an agrarian metaphor, and not a lot of us get it. But I think the best way, if you want to make harvesting in 2019 applicable, just think of doing a print job. When you are printing that 400-page, 20-copy report, and if you hit the print button and just wait for the lights to turn on and life to happen and it not to say drum error. And like, why do you have a drum error? You're a printer. You have no musical quality. Just get toner and do it. And you eagerly await for it to start warmly spitting out the first copy. And as it does, you grab it and you eagerly flip through it and look through it. Does it all come out the way that it said it would? And as you look at that pristine copy, you know it is the first fruit that what has been produced will certainly be reproduced in the followers. It's like spring. You look at the trees now, and they're not full, but they're not empty. They're filled with buds, with flowers, with the first fruits that life is coming. And as creation waits and groans, ultimately its largest problem is not lack of clean water or lack of education. Yes, these are real, and, or lack of equality. All those things are real and are real things that need to be pressed in by believers of the gospel or all of humanity who seeks the betterment of our world. But our most fundamental problem, Paul says, is the human condition. That regardless if you fix all the problems, that those who are in charge of it will distort it for their own gain and glory. And that ultimately what you and I need most is not a killer app. It is a redeemed heart that only comes from the pouring of the spirit of one who has been resurrected and paid for death and sin in full. See, this humanistic ideology that we're all just beautiful snowflakes that are corrupted by the external. There's nothing internal. Paul doesn't buy, and neither do sociologists like Jordan Peterson. It says, if society is corrupt, but not the individuals within it, then where did the corruption originate, and how is it propagated? It doesn't come just from without. Absolutely, all of creation is marred by death. But it comes most potently from within. But we look to the resurrection of Jesus again as the turning point of humanity. It's why we measure all human history and the break of it by his life and death and resurrection. Yes, we've renamed it to common era and before common era, but ultimately we know that it is marked by the life, the teaching, the miracles, the stand for justice and righteousness and holiness, the amazing humanity and divinity of a peasant born into suffering, enduring all of the pains that Paul talks about, but being buried as a seed and rising again to be the first fruits of all of creation and those who would follow after him. So now we come to celebrate what's happened in the past and also to mourn 
but not mourn the past, but rather partially the present. As we groan and yearn and wait for all things, to wait in hope. I see so many Christians today waiting with no hope. And I want to say, lift your eyes. Look to the horizon. Your king is coming. He's bringing life and renewal for all things. He's bringing justice, yes, and grace and mercy. So we wait and we mourn and we groan and we hope for what has come and what is coming. And so simply to respond to all this, I just ask you, are you, if you believe this, working it out in the implications of your life? Whether you're not a Christian and you're here, you've been invited, glad you're here, this is everything we believe. This is everything we hang our hat on at the end of the day for all of eternity. And if you're here and you're a Christian, then are you working out the implication of the resurrection being a reality both today and in fullness to come in your everyday life? Is it changing the way you get up in the morning? Is it changing the way that you arrange your days, your weeks, your years, your life, your career, your, your obstacles of, and how you deal with them, your pain, your depression, your medication, your, your, uh, the way that you do life in and out? Is it changing it? Is it saying, uh, are you asking yourself the thought experiment is if the resurrection is true, then how would that radically change my Monday? How does that radically change my next decade? How does that radically change my marriage, my singleness, my whatever? Because again, we've mitigated pain, but no matter if you're living whatever dream you've chosen, the single dream, the materialistic dream, the family dream, the whatever technological can save all things dream. Like one man said, in this life, it's all unfinished sentence. But our hope is in what's happening today and what will be consummated with all of us praising our king, holy, 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 with drums way louder than this. If that is your faith, if that is your belief, then one simple tangible change you can have from this moment to the next is coming forward to participate in the act of communion. The celebration that the death, the breaking of the body, the spilling of the blood of our Lord was not just a catastrophe, but a catastrophe, because it led to the burial and the resurrection of a seed of the first fruits that we now hope in today and for all eternity. And so... In a moment, come when you're ready. There'll be stations around the room, including gluten. Let me pray for us. Father God, arrest us by hope. Surprise us by joy. Give us an inexplicable faith and a life that reflects it of those who are very much so aware of the current birth pains that we are seeing 
all around us and experiencing, whether acutely or profoundly. And then lift us, lift our heads, lift our eyes. Let us live as those who are fully in the moment, fully about seeing this world and the kingdom brought into it, but with one eye always on the horizon, one eye always looking for the joy that is to come in its fullness. And let that be inexplicably baffling to those who would experience a similar amount of data but come to a completely more despairing conclusion until they ask or we declare our hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.